Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. Bruce, in the in the dead of the offseason like this, it's often easy to get stuck and caught up on off the field stuff, you know, issues in the news, NIL and whatnot. But I've really been enjoying reading our state of the program stories on The Athletic, uh, where we, you know, our writers go really, really, really deep into each of the Power Five teams and the top group of five teams. And by the way, you can read those. Uh, Go to theathletic.com slash the audible to get 20% off a subscription to the athletic. And there've been some really interesting teams that we have featured just in the last week or so. So I'm going to list these teams and I want you to tell me which, which of these teams intrigues you the most in 2021. This is not who do I think is going to win the national title? Who do I think is going to be the best team? Just interesting. Okay. Here we go. Virginia tech, Utah, Georgia, Cincinnati, San Jose State, Boston College. Ooh, there's a lot to pick from. Can I take two? Sure. Uh, all right. So I'm going to say Georgia is one. I would like to talk about them in a second. But I'm going to take Utah as the other one. So oh, That was going to be mine. So look, let's talk about the youth. So obviously lots of respect for what Kyle Whittingham has done in that program. You know, just from talking to some coaches in the Pac-12 – they got a lot of big physical people on the defensive side of the ball. And one of the coaches I talked to, had, who was a line coach in the conference, said, you know, I felt like they were kind of a year away from probably being pretty nasty up front, and that could be this year. And this other coach in the conference said, you know, like they have a matchup nightmare guy who does not get talked about enough, and that's Brent Keithy, that, who's a tight end, who they move him around, they do a lot of stuff with. And so then you add Charlie Brewer, who did have, you know, play, you know, has played a lot of football in the Big 12, looked good in the spring game, albeit it's a spring game, but still it's like, you know, I think they're very, they're an intriguing team. So before we kind of dig into Georgia for some other reasons, um, why, are, like, are you buying the Utes as a team that can because I feel like a lot of people are going well. USC is the most talented team. USC is going to win the South for whatever that's worth. Are you thinking Utah instead of USC? Yeah, I mean, I, I USC is number three to me in the South. Um, and flip a coin between Utah and ASU, but I think I lean more Utah just because they're more proven. Kyle Whittingham's. I mean, they. I think everybody forgot about them because they only played four games last year in this in that weird Pac-12 season. Everybody forgot about the whole conference, frankly. Um, you know, they won the division back-to-back years before that. And you know, I feel like at this point, you give Kyle Whittingham the benefit of the doubt that, like you said, they're going to be very good on the lines of scrimmage. Now, the, the you know, you can't talk about Utah and not talk about the tragic death of Ty Jordan, who emerged as a freshman last season as their next 
great star running back. And then he was shot and killed um, shortly after the season. So they brought in a couple transfers uh, at running back guys who um, we've seen play or at least a little bit in TJ, TJ Pledger from Oklahoma and Chris Curry from LSU. But really, it's about Charlie Brewer. And, um, you know, this is a guy who was starting in the Big 12 title game two years ago. So Utah, to me, quarterback has always been kind of the thing holding back Utah. Um, Tyler Huntley was was pretty good and and got them, you know, on the brink of the playoff. And then they, they just laid an egg against Oregon in the title game. So is he the guy that puts them over the top? Because really, the thing that's left for Utah to do is actually win the Pac-12. They've won the division. I don't think winning the Pac-12 South is going to get you a lot of accolades nationally. you got to actually win the conference and go to either the Rose Bowl, or uh, which would be a really big deal for Utah, or obviously the playoff. Okay, so just project. So you said you have – if you are doing your rankings in the conference right now, you have USC ranked – you would be the, thir- the third best team. Is In the South. In the South, correct. It. It, and you would have, are you going to say Utah is your favorite to win the South? Yeah, Utah is my favorite to win the South. ASU is very, and talk about intriguing teams. I mean, this is Herm Edwards' fourth season already, believe it or not. And this is the year where it feels like if it's going to happen, this would be the year for it to happen with Jaden Daniels, with two great running backs. They've kind of remade their defense athletically. Um, uh, so, like, you know, I've heard from ASU fans who think this is going to be their best team in a long, long time. We just, they got to prove it. And uh, so I think I, I lean to the, I guess what I would say safer pick in Utah and USC obviously has a great quarterback and great skill talent. Um, they've had that for the past. I don't think they years. have great skill talent. I don't think they're like, I think they have really good skill talent. I wouldn't go. They've good receivers. Far. Yeah. They have good receivers right now. It's like, you know, Stephen Carr just, you talked just about that last yeah, week. I don't think they have yeah. like, they had great skill talent when Leinert was the quarterback there. There's no, like, Reggie Bush or Lendell White in the backfield. I mean, Malapai is a good all-around back, and Keontae Agram is a is a solid running back at this point. But it's not like – this is USC. They have not had that, like, wow guy in the backfield. And so, you know, and their offensive line is a big question mark. But, you know, they lost two really productive receivers – they took a bunch of transfers who are skill guys. I mean, I think they have, like I said, I think Keaton Slovis has good skill talent around him. I would stop short of saying it's great until we see more from those guys. So here's an under under the radar team for me that was among that list of schools that I just mentioned. Nicole Auerbach wrote this one, Boston College. Uh, I feel like I thought they were going to be terrible last year in Jeff Halfley's first season. Uh, they had just lost A.J. Dillon. They had just lost... Anthony Brown, who's now going to be the starter at Oregon. And like every school that had a coaching change, um, no spring practice, just everything seemed to be lined up against them. Except for one thing. And they were actually, what's that? I think you would agree. They had a big upgrade in the head coach. They had a big upgrade. Well, we did. Yes, they did. Although, I think you're saying that more because we were so down on Steve Adazio. We didn't know what to expect. No, but Jeff like, Hafley I mean, coach. just as somebody who's written a, and covered uh, Jeff Halfley a bunch before, and uh, granted, he'd never been a head coach before, but I was like, to me, he was one of the more like, oh, that's a really good fit. I could see it. Like Adazio was spinning his wheels there. And there was, right. you know, so I just felt like it was, it was a big upgrade that they had as a head coach and real, you know, needed jolt of energy. They also had a big upgrade at quarterback and a, and a guy in Phil Jerkovic from Notre Dame who 
I maybe had lower expectations for just because I remember that nightmare spring game he had uh, at Notre Dame. Um, and I just didn't expect him to come in and, and, and be so productive so fast. And now we're already, I mean, it seems a little premature to me, but I'm not a draft expert. He's showing up in early uh, first round mock drafts for next year. Um, they've got a, he's got a, a really good receiver. Uh, I think he was first team all ACC last season. That would be Zay Flowers. Um, you remember they gave Clemson quite a scare. Um, you know, they had a lot of near misses last year. They, they gave Clemson a scare. They gave UNC a scare, who obviously ended up being very good. Um, I'm curious to see if they take a big step forward in year two. Somebody, I mean, Clemson's still the team to beat, but somebody else in the ACC has to emerge as, you know, a quality program. NC State's flirted with that, but I don't feel like they've really, you know, had that one team that that came out and wowed everybody, um, you know, why not be seen? Mm-hmm. No, it's uh, it's. I, I'm with you. I like I said. I I I think Halfley is a really good fit there. They have a quarterback who's talented. Uh, you know, they lost a terrific tight end, but I think they've, um, you know, they have some interesting pieces there. So that, you know, a minute ago I was trying to segue off of what you said about um, Utah, but or I'm sorry about ASU. Where it's like, hey, it's his fourth year. It's time. Like, and this is the year. So this is one. I want to circle back to Georgia on this. And to me, it feels like, and I don't want to say it's now or never if you're Kirby Smart, but I feel like this is about as good a window as as you could hope for. Alabama had a great team. They, they still have a really talented team, but they lost a ton of guys off that team. Florida has, you know, just won the SEC East title, but they lost, a, you know, a generational, their best player in a long time in Kyle Pitts, a good starting quarterback. Their defense has been pretty shaky um, anyway. So it's like, and Georgia, you know, it's like, look, they've loaded up on four and five star guys. Now they need to play like it because, to me, and Seth uh, Emerson pointed this out in his, his state of the program, which is like, if you look at, they came close to winning the national title in the game. Devontae Smith and Tua end up winning when Alabama rallies for them. But after that, it's like they've taken little bits of steps back in the three years since then, right? You go back to 2018, they lose three games. You go back to 2019, they play LSU in the SEC title game and they get their asses kicked. And then you go back to last year, you know, they, I don't know. I mean, they, it wasn't like this was a great Florida team. They lose to them. They're really shaky on defense. They're, they think they found out the, solved the quarterback problem or challenge that they've had there. But, you know, I still think the, the jury's still out on that a little bit. I mean, JT Daniels played half a season and it wasn't like it was like they played great competition in those games so and they have Clemson right out of the gate I'm really interested I think they're a playoff team but you know is is do you think do you have confidence if I said to you right now give me the percent chance you think Georgia will win the national title this year didn't you ask me that a few weeks ago? I probably did, but you asked because me because I think thinking. I said twenty percent, and then somebody, you know, somebody uh, emailed us and said like, "Hey, your percentages don't add up," which um, they never do on these things. Which they which they never do. Um, they should. I think but they that 
I mean, I think that the thing that Seth wrote in there, which is so true, is that there's such a disconnect between, you know, w- people on the outside, right? We're so playoff or bust. Yeah. So, 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 and, and so it's like, well, if he doesn't pull it off this year, then he should be on the hot seat. And, and that's not how Georgia fans feel about it at all. Sure, they'll be disappointed if, you know, they, they want to go to the playoff. They feel like they should contend for the national championship with the talent they have. They'll be disappointed if they fall up, fall just short again. But as Seth pointed out, like you feel pretty good that like your time is going to come when you're signing that many, when you're stacking top three class after top three class after top three class, your moment's going to come at some point. And it was, to me, it's always been about the quarterback. He just hasn't had the quarterback to, to, to break through like that. Well, he, he probably did. And he ended up at Ohio state. Right. And you can debate that till the end of time. The people who say, what a, what a, what a mess up, what what a screw up on his part that he, stuck with from and others would be like how could he have not stuck with the quarterback who had just taken them to the national title game um yeah i mean is jt daniels going to be that guy he certainly looked the part in four games last season people have pointed out the competition um if he if he's really good i think this could be their year for sure because they're loaded uh throughout the rest of the team and Alabama will be loaded again, as always. So what is the real... Um, they lost a lot of key players. So if you are a Georgia fan, and I know from your time in Atlanta, you know a bunch of diehard Georgia fans, what do you tell them? Like, do you tell them, like... And again, I'm not saying... I'm definitely not saying Kirby should be on the hot seat if they go 10-2 and two and they don't win the... You know, they, they lose to Alabama or lose to somebody in the SEC title game. But if you're a Georgia fan... What do you like? What should your expectations be at this point? Because you are recruiting, like you are committed to playing football at the highest level in terms of the money they spend on football and everything else. Um, so, what should the expectations for Georgia be right now? The expectation should be that at the very least, you're in the SEC championship game. Um, I think that's why last year was particularly disappointing. They didn't even. You know, they lost to Florida and they didn't, they were pretty much out of the race, you know, once they lost to Florida, um, given everything Florida lost, there's no reason Georgia shouldn't be in Atlanta this year. And they should go into that game in Atlanta playing for a spot in the playoff. I think it's a little unfair to be like, and you have to beat Alabama. And if you don't, the whole season was a failure um, or whoever emerged, maybe whoever emerges out of the West is going to be a really good team, whether it's Alabama or LSU, A&M. Uh, that's your bare minimum expectation. And then once every few years, you should win that game. Um, they did it in 2017. It's not an eternity. I mean, it's almost like that never happened in some people's minds. Like they won the SEC championship game and reached the national championship game in 2017. I don't think it's a, a colossal failure that three years have passed since that. But now it's four years and like you should probably pull that off every so often. I've said this before, but it reminds me to this point of Mac Brown at Texas. They were calling him Mr. February because he was bringing in those classes and they would feel top 10 teams, but then they would always lose to Oklahoma and end up in the holiday bowl. Um, it took until Vince young to break through and win it all. And I don't think JT Daniels is Vince young, but he could be, could he be that guy that puts them over the top? Could he, do you think he will be? Uh, it's hard for me to pick against Alabama right now. Uh, it really is. I mean, I had Alabama in the early, I mean, in the spring top 25, I had, uh, Alabama one, Georgia two, but as we know, it's got to, it takes a, it would take a, a, you know, a certain set of circumstances for them to both make it. Also, let's not forget Georgia plays Clemson week one big game. Um, 
if they lose, that doesn't eliminate them from the playoff, but it gives them no margin for error down the stretch. Yeah, I, I just think I did uh, Jim Donnan's podcast. It was It's a Georgia podcast on Monday, and we talked about the Georgia-Clemson game, and I was like, it feels really good to talk about matchups like that um, at this time of year. It's something to like. I don't like. You know, we've talked about this off, offline, but it's like I don't feel like we can talk about that stuff enough at this point, just because you know we're already through the spring. We're not that far off from from media days, and like you know, look, two Southern California kids against each other in that game. DJ against JT. Obviously, it's more than just the quarterback matchup, but. You know, like I talked to some of my bosses on the TV side and we talked about the early season schedule. And I was like, man, like there's some really intriguing matchups right out of the gate. And, um, you know, I can't wait for that. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. We talk a lot, I feel like, about Chris Peterson on this podcast and our respect for him. And um, the year before he retired, I had him as the number three coach in the country. And then he retired and he just kind of vanished. And I remember a few weeks ago offline, you and I were like, I wonder if we could, I wonder if either of us could get in touch with him. Like, where is he? And you did. And uh, you had a, a very extensive interview with him on The Athletic, very wide ranging. And I hope people who read it, or if you go read it, will be able to get a sense of just how unique he is as a personality and the way he looks at life. I mean, your interview barely touched on X's and O's football. Yeah, it, it was, it's been fascinating because obviously we're on the West Coast, you and I, and so normally I will get up early and I may tweet out a story that's running. In this case, it's like, well, it's a story about a Pac-12 or a coach who you know spent most of his time either at Boise or Washington. And... So I wasn't like tweeting it out at 4.45 Pacific time, but it's it lives on the site whenever they post it, Stu. I don't know. You'd know this better than me. Maybe it's at 4 a.m. Pacific or whatever, but like, or maybe it's on the app. I didn't know, but I, I got a text from somebody I know who works in pro, pro football, and it was like it really resonated with him. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. And then I started getting more and more texts from people who work in sports but maybe aren't coaches just about like, wow, it felt like he was talking right to me and about this. And honestly, when I had this conversation, there was a lot of stuff that 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 I think we both kind of share. Obviously, I'm not a, you know, a high level football coach who lived in that world. But just in terms of, you know, just human um development and our lives and how they are all to some degree interconnected and we share some 
things. Um, and so it was interesting to hear his perspective on everything from social media, which he's not, which he's barely on, but was on enough to realize, ooh, this is a really toxic thing. Um, and I can see whenever I got off it, I, you know, I usually felt bad after after being on it. And his self awareness, which I think differentiates him from many of the football head coaches that I know of, um, in terms of like okay, these are, these are things that are not healthy for me. I have no balance. Lots of, the more, lots of football coaches I know who are even very successful head coaches, I'm not sure that they, if they were being honest with themselves, have that same balance. And what I realized over the course of the day and even you know, through the night, like I think I told you, you know, just as you and I were chatting like over text, late last night like I had my son's football practice and a bunch of stuff where I was offline and I'm catching up on things that were either tweeted about the story or people reached out to me I was like man this really landed with a lot of people that I wouldn't have thought about and then there was a bunch of coaches who I know who know of Chris Peterson but don't have relationships with him who are like hey can you connect me to him because I feel like this this really um felt like I'm headed to where I'm on the road to where he is right now. And so, and I know from talking to Chris this morning, he heard from a lot of people similarly that wanted to, you know, connect with him or felt like they should connect with him. So, um, yes, it was like, I haven't, I've had some good responses to some stories, but never a response quite that was like that because I don't want to say it was so much of a mental health um, piece, but I think there was elements of that that really, um, you know, there's a 25 year old guy I know who used to be a recruiting coordinator who left the business or, you know, mid 20s who left the business this year. And he talked about, I had these same issues over the last like year and that's why I decided you know what there's a better way for me and I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna step aside from this and so it is really fascinating not only to, to hear Peterson's whole perspective and self you know coaches talk about self scouting all the time he actually did it in his real self um, and finally opened his eyes to it and then to hear people talk about their own experiences with it was really fascinating well, I don't think you have to be a football coach right. to relate to a lot of the things he's talking about with work-life balance. I mean, yes, we, we, we talk and read all the time about these coaches who work 15 hour days and their phones never off and they're always having to call recruits and blah, 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 blah. But like, I don't know that that's unique to football coaches. I think in today's, you know, kind of, you know, the, the, the modes of communication, you know, Slack text, like you're never off and in a lot of professions and, um, and, and so like you have this section here where you, you say to him, when I wake up in the morning, I look at Twitter and Twitter isn't always this way, but it's often toxic stuff. It just has a tendency to put you in a bad place. And yet many of us feel compelled to keep checking it. I think about that in regards to how precious time really is. One of my biggest fears is waking up and realizing I'm 73 years old and wondering where did the time go to which he says, no question, or look back and say, uh Oh, I did this all wrong. That was the thing I was coming to grips with. You could go win a lot of games, compete for championships and do good work. But at the end of the day, you feel like, where did my life go? And I think it's one of those things that we all have that thought. Sometimes we all feel like, gosh, I'm going to get old and wake up one day and realize like, did I, did I really need to be, you know, staying up until 2am working on that story? Um, you know, in, in whatever year or, 
you know, did I, what a shame that I missed this moment with my daughter or this or that, because I was, uh, I don't know, in our case, I guess would be like in a hotel room in some college town somewhere, um, working on a story. Uh, so I think what you're saying is resonating. It should be resonating with far more than just football coaches. Yeah. And so we all have our own individual WTF moments when you take a step back and what are you doing? Like there was a moment, um, I have like a couple that pop into my head and I, we all go down our little rabbit holes of what they are. Hopefully we have the self-awareness to know they're actually rabbit holes. So one of my rabbit holes is definitely the coaching search, you know, stuff. And so, um, Missouri played Auburn in the SEC title game where Trey Mason ran for like a thousand yards in the game. I spent the majority of that game in the lobby of whatever it was. I think it was the Georgia Dome. It wouldn't have been Mercedes-Benz then probably. Frantically trying to find out who is going to be the next head coach at Wyoming. You know, <laughs> there was a sighting of like, I mean, this, I'm not sure if this is exactly the blow by blow, but there was supposedly a sighting by somebody I knew um, who either worked in Wyoming athletics or was really close to somebody who worked in athletics. It was like, I think that's Mark Mangino. He might've been there. No, I think it's Brock Spack. I'm like, they don't look alike. And as much as I like Mark Mangino, I think Brock Spack would throw a drink in my face if he heard that comparison. You know, it's like, and it became that way. Well, at the end of the, like, I don't know, fourth quarter, I get tipped off by, okay, they're going to hire Craig Bull. I report it and, Tony Barnhart, our friend, you know, longtime uh, college football writer, I remember he says to me, hey, as he's like leaving the building, like, hey, good job on on Wyoming. And I was like, thanks, Tony. And then I said, you know what? I think I spent like, whatever, three hours obsessing over something that probably seven people care about that much. And only like three of them are, you know, going to be online for it at this point. You know, it's like, what are you doing? You know, it's like, yeah, it matters, but it shouldn't matter like that. And it's the kind of thing where, like, if you were honest with me, used to, or if, like, you know, some other people were honest with me, like, they could probably say, yeah, you're probably overdoing like that or whatever. Like, you talked about, um, you know, I won't, you know, like, there's certain, like, coaching things where I'm like, well, why am I getting so frantic about that, you know, or whatever? Because it's like, yes, it matters to to be on the news, like not on the news on TV, but like to do that stuff. But some of these things, you know, we uh, we can obsess about when you take a step back from it, they don't, you know, they shouldn't matter as much as you make them matter, right? And so um, to spin it forward, about three weeks ago, I did a story on Mizzou, their coaching staff, and Eli Drinkwitz. And one of the coaches I talked to was, the running back coach there, Curtis Looper, and he started telling me a story about we had this uh, this uh, former Mizzou player who's now a coach who's a longtime high school coach in Virginia, and he's like, and he's a pretty big coach back there. He actually coached Michael Vick, and I was like, wait a minute. I said Tommy Reeman. He goes, yeah, that's him. He's like, you know him? I'm like, yeah, I know him. I I did Michael Vick stories and got to know him there, but I also spent a week on the road with him and. When Michael Vick's younger brother Marcus was getting uh, recruited, we had a ESPN magazine story where we're like going to go on the road to summer camps with him and his best receiver and just see what you know how that works and what the reaction is like. So I spent a bunch of time around Tommy Raymond. Now that was twenty years ago. I fell out of touch with Tommy probably for the last fifteen. And so I called him and for the story. And Tommy is like. 
you know, he's probably 70 and he's an interesting guy. He was like in Hollywood as an actor and has appeared in like, you know, he had a real role in North Dallas 40 and, you know, he's been on Charlie's Angels and a bunch of other shows back then before he got back into coaching. So at the end, he's like asking me about like what I've been doing since, like what my family life is like and all this stuff, very human things. And at one point, like I talk, you know, I mentioned to him, yeah, I'm like coaching my kid's first grade football team. And I said, hey, give me, I said, got any advice? And I'm not, I was expecting it to be like, you know, hey, don't do this with, you know, like little kids can't learn this or whatever. And he, his, and I can still hear his voice as this, and he has this really deep voice, and it was like, don't miss a moment. And that I will probably hear in his voice in my head for till the time they're probably out of college. And, you know, it's like I didn't do something this like a couple of weeks ago or last week. There was these meetings in Arizona that I normally would go to. And I would go to if it is like, you know, full on as much, you know, like every conference is there or most of the conferences are there. But it was like a very scaled down version of it. It was like, well, I had baseball practice and then I had football practice like subsequent days. And it's just like I thought about what he said, you know, and um so that's my kind of part of my connection to the stuff that is coming up with chris peterson and work-life balance my advice to you is the difference between you and me is like i work hard year-round except i take vacations you know and and not not in the past year really that much but like i've got some coming up this summer you've told me like you guys just basically don't go on vacation you've told me like you feel genuinely feel like you can never be off like you guys need to go to hawaii or something for a week and you need to like turn your phone off yeah so on that two things one i feel like you know we live by the beach and it kind of makes makes you think you know what like i'm gonna go to a different beach which i think can be cathartic for the other people who live in this house house with me, no doubt. But it's like, at the same time, it's like when you live in a place that is a very destination place, um, you know, last year, or I guess it was two years ago now, because of what, you know, like we went to Utah. You know, my kids had never seen the mountains or, no, they'd seen the mountains, but they'd never seen snow. And it was great, you know, like that kind of thing. The part about turning off your phone is that's my Chris Peterson thing where it's like, I know I should do that. I don't do like the closest I get to that is, you know, if we have football practice or we have baseball practice, I take my cell phone and I, you know, basically throw it in, you know, a a bag and I don't check it. You know, last year I had one of those where I remember I got off the field. We had fall baseball practice, you know, we're talking first graders and I got back on the field and I had like six messages about Trevor Lawrence had, had tested positive. And it was like 10 days out of the Notre Dame game. And all of a sudden I get home and I'm showering and now I have to tape a video for Fox and, you know, we have to react off it. I mean, so it's like, that's the, that's the, the, the balance, you know, it's like, um, you know, like, I'm not perfect about it, by the way. I, you know, generally, if, if I go, if we go to Maui for, let's say, you know, we should go for like maybe five days. I'm pretty good about like the first two or three days of like, okay, we're going to go to the pool or we're going to go to the beach and I'm going to put my phone in the hotel room safe, you know, and not touch it. 
by the third, fourth day, it's like, okay, I'm going to bring the phone, check Twitter real quick, and then put it away. And then by the last day, I'm kind of like back to normal. So it's a, you know, we all, a lot of us have like device addictions and, and stuff. The Twitter thing for me, as it related to that part you mentioned in the Peterson story is like, if I ever like, you know, use the search function, the magnifying glass, Hey, what did, what did Stu just tweet? What did this person, you know, like, or, or something, but you click on the magnet, it, it basically shows you what is trending. Now I don't use tweet deck. Like I've, I know disciplined enough when that came, I'm never effed with it. Cause I was like, you know what? That was probably smart. Yeah. Cause I know myself, I don't need to see all this other stuff coming up, but when you do see it, it's like, Oh, I look over and it's like, why is this town t- trending? probably something bad happened it's like was there a school shooting or a mass shooting or this person is trending well they probably said something pretty vile or something negative is like like that's the turn like to me twitter in a lot of ways is is looking under the rock that's you know been over you know that you're turning over and that like that's the you know you wake up to the negative place it was like that's the part where i'm like all right that's not doing me so much good As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Real quick, we're going to get to the mailbag, but real quick, there's a there's a big college football game this weekend. FCS National Championship game, and it's, uh, you know, people in, uh, you know, FBS complain about... Um, same teams over and over again. Well, FCS is getting some new is going to get a first time national champion this weekend, either South Dakota State or Sam Houston. Who you got? Um, I'm torn. I would say I'm going to lean towards South Dakota State, as I think you remember, like my crew did South Dakota State's first game when they almost yep. beat Minnesota at Minnesota in the year that Minnesota had a top 15 team. You were on to South Dakota State before I was. most people. I was. Big Ten fans. Uh, Jason Eck, former Badger offensive lineman, is a really good offensive coordinator. People really like him. He is the Jackrabbits guy. You know, it's he's even though he was, you know, played in, at Wisconsin and, and had GA'd in, in the MAC and everything, like he also spent a little time running the air raid offense back when I think he was at HBCU program and he's done a really good job they had a quarterback who they liked um who jabori gibbs who was their starting quarterback as a redshirt freshman he got hurt new quarterback comes in they also lost their best player cade johnson 
who ended up opting out and is now, you know, in an NFL camp. And so they've just kind of kept rolling along and they beat some really good teams. You got Sam Houston State, who has the most dynamic player in FCS now, Jaquez Ezzard, who was at Howard and is somebody I am writing about for this week. So check that out. But um, I don't know. The one thing is, thankfully, ESPN put the semifinals on real TV because I was hoping that these games would actually this season more of it would be on TV so people could see it. And I'm not saying, you know, digitally they couldn't see it, but it's just like when you put games on T on actual TV, as opposed to just like a digital platform, I think it just gets a different level of attention and the games were fun to watch this week. For sure. All right. I'll, I'll play contrarian. Uh, I'll pick Sam Houston state just because Casey Keeler is is an amazing coach uh he you know if you if you if you're not familiar with him or you don't or maybe you are like oh, i recognize that name but i'm not sure why i mean he you know it's another lifetime ago but like he led delaware to the f uh, what was then one double a national championship had them play for a couple more had a great run there petered out at the end got fired resurfaces at sam houston state and now he's got them as a perennial um, you know, when I'm playing for the national championship, perennial FCS playoff team. So um, I'll go with them. You go with your guys and we'll see what happens. What do you say we get to the mailbag? All right. As always, you can send your questions to the audible pod at gmail.com. Stu, I'm going to start this one for you. Um, it's a question that hits a little home for both of us. And it's from our friend Patrick Bacher in Virginia. Hey guys, great podcast as always as a college football fan, but totally outside the sports industry. I was curious as to how writers, sideline personalities and podcasters become aware of and check their biases. We know Bruce went to Miami and Stu went to Northwestern, but I've, but I'd never say that color that colors y'all's work. Thank you, Patrick. I think the harder potential biases to guard against would be coaches that give you good access, staffs that are responsive, or schools that make visits easy slash comfortable. How would you guard against it? I know every fan base, of course, thinks every writer is against them. Stu, let's talk. Kind of a timely question, Bruce. Uh, you may know that my alma mater is embroiled in this controversy over their choice for a new athletic director, Mike Poliski, uh, who was promoted against the wishes of a lot of the current students because he is named in a um, discrimination lawsuit filed by a, a cheerleader about um, harassment uh, allegations in the cheerleading program. He, Mike Poliski was in charge of marketing. He oversees that. And so there's like a big protest on campus and Darren Ravel, who I went to school with, everybody know, you know, knows who Darren is mostly from Twitter uh, this morning tweeted out, a letter signed by a whole bunch of prestigious athletes, alumni, and executives at Northwestern in support of Mike Poliski. Disclosure, I have signed the letter. Uh, Darren, I know he doesn't cover college sports directly, so you can say, like, maybe that's not a big deal. He has never tried to hide his biases. He is raw, raw purple all the way through. I've never been comfortable with that because I do cover college football for a living, and I want to be objective and fair. And so... Um, to his point, and maybe you agree, Bruce, it's not about, for me, the, it's, it's not about, um, where you went to school. It's exactly what he said. I think, um, 
kind of the more you rise in the profession and the more you have access to these coaches and you just naturally develop relationships with some that are better than others. I think that's where it becomes harder to, where you have to kind of, and then, you know, remind yourself or check yourself, okay, am I being too favorable toward this guy? Am I being too harsh toward this other guy just because I don't know him as well? Yeah, I, I would speak to this because I feel like I'm more of an access reporter than probably more many people on our staff necessarily who are national. And part of that's because I've been around for a while. Um, I think that the challenge is here. And look, people know that I wrote a book with uh, Ed Ogeron this past year. Now, fortunately for The Athletic, we have a very good beat reporter there in Brody Miller. And so you know, Brody is going to do a lot of the heavy lifting on, on that, uh, on that program. He's going to do almost all of it, but in it, what I feel like I need to balance is look, there are certain programs where, and this isn't just a, a me thing. This is other people as on our staff, but there are certain programs who are going to be very open to you coming in and spending time inside meetings around the program and you can probably write a very compelling story uh our colleague max olson should be the mayor of ames iowa he has done a bunch of really good stories on a program that we should be writing a lot about you know what matt campbell has done there and there are other programs where if you go to say hey i want to go visit them you know it's the equivalent of pre-pandemic you basically could get the same content that you're going to same access you're going to get being just getting the coach on the phone from the other side of the country to me on that regard. And this is, I'm going to be totally blunt and transparent on this. If like I, you know, I'm probably not going to go pursue that story if it's limited access because I'm not taking the reader anywhere they can't go um, anywhere unique on it. And so for me, making the determination, A, it's not probably going to be worth the company's money to put me on a plane and have me go, you know, spend a night or two in a hotel if basically they set up one interview for me and I sit in a room with a guy for 12 minutes or 20 minutes, as opposed to you're in meetings, you're in this. It's not like if you do the access, you're going to turn a program that that is a seven and five team and try to talk about them like they're the and and claim they're the team that's a national title contender um i think you are able to show something about the program that is unique um the reason why some of the you know why i wouldn't have written that book uh a year ago if lsu didn't beat alabama and if lsu didn't win a national title they were very you know there's a compelling element to that you know like i wrote meat market it was not with ed ogeron it was about the program there i didn't try to pretend that the team was a really good team i didn't try to pretend that a team that was four and eight was eight and four um you're providing the context and if readers want to um you know feel like you have credibility with it they're going to read your story or you're they're going to watch your story on tv if they don't they won't and that's that's you know the kind of the marketplace as it is and um you know i think it comes back to relationships like some of us at the athletic are going to be able to get access to things that other reporters may not um and i think that comes back to do the people who we're covering do they think you're going to be fair to them and objective with them 
Um, and that's, you know, that's my perspective on it. As far as going back to, you know, as Stu went to Northwestern, I went to Miami. Um, you know, I feel like I, you know, I've written a book about that program. So I feel like I know it's history. I'd be lying to you if I felt, if I told you right now, like I didn't, you know, I'm not as plugged in at Miami as I was 20 years ago or 15 years ago. I'm probably more plugged in than I was six years ago or eight years ago. And I didn't feel like, you know, it just depends on who is there, um, you know, and how well you know the people who are there. It doesn't change, you know, how, you know, how you talk about them in the context of how good they are or not, but it may, it may give you more context to know what the, what's going on inside the program and the people and players who are involved in it, though. I think that I always say to, well, I don't, I don't want to say this comes up that often, but when it's come up in the past, and I feel like I, I can't really explain why, but the whole like you hate my team, you're biased against my team thing has kind of faded. I, I got a lot more of that in like the pre-Twitter era. Who do people, who do people think you really hate if there was like one one big example? It, of it? It, well, it changes from year to year or era to era. Um, I, I've had it. I've heard it from both sides of the Ohio State-Michigan rivalry at various times. That there was times when. Ohio State's fan base hate me. There's times when Michigan's fan base hated me. They probably hate me right now. I don't know. Um, but I would always say, like, you know, everybody has a profession. And nothing is more important than your reputation. I'm sorry, but, like, getting to see Northwestern go to the Citrus Bowl is not more important than my own professional reputation. And I'm not going to, like, jeopardize that by, you know, getting out the purple pom-pom. So, um it's hard for some people to understand because they're, you know, we're, our audience is rabid college football fans who are super loyal to their schools and can't imagine, you know, not being for, that, that somebody that that likes college football and went to that school wouldn't be exactly the same way. You know, I'll, I'll, I'm not going to lie. I, it's nice to see when Northwestern does well in football. Unfortunately, they're doing pretty well right now, but I'm not going to like let that affect my coverage of the sport. And if anything, I probably err on the side of being, uh, more cautious or critical of them uh, for that reason. Yeah, I think it's interesting to me. Like, I'm, you know, friends with some people I've worked with who are former players. You know, like Robert Smith, you know, former Ohio State running back and, you know, terrific player for the Vikings. Like, I know Robert has a real connection to the Vikings, you know, and it's like, it doesn't shock me, but it's like, you know, he's still really emotionally invested in that organization and that team. Um, you know, I could see how it's more challenging if, you know, for Matt Leiner and Reggie Bush to be on TV talking about USC than it is for, you know, like our friend Ryan Abraham, who has covered it, but didn't play for the team, you know, like, um, so there's always been a different set of rules for the former coaches and players. It's, who are on TV than the writers. Yeah, like, and I don't know how much, like, you know, it's like, it's dicey, like, you know, one of the people we know who we're friendly with, I think, is Albert Breer, who is like an NFL reporter, who is a openly humongous Ohio State fan. Well, he doesn't really cover college football, so, you know, it's a little different, whereas, like, I, I have no idea. I would assume, Stu, you're a Cincinnati Bengals fan, but I don't think you're, like, a big NFL Not fan. Not in the last uh, 30 years. Okay, yeah. So, like, for me, like, I would say, yeah, there are players that who I have covered who I now, you know, openly would root for if they get in, you know, if they play in the NFL. 
you know, I don't cover the NFL like that. Now, I do write about, you know, the draft and things like that, you know, but, you know, some of that is just like people you've observed, people you've gotten to know. Look, I did spend a bunch of time around Ashton Davis. If Ashton Davis has a, you know, really good NFL career for the Jets, I would be excited about it. I've been, you know, I like to see Dan Morgan has had a lot of success both as a player in the NFL and then as an executive. So, like, those are things, you know, you make those connections, you try to be, you know, transparent with it because we're human. Um, but again, I think it's different with, um, you know, with with us, the sport we cover. You know, like, do I secretly, you know, slightly, you know, pull for Texas A&M because Buzz Williams is there? Yes, I do. But I, it's like, you don't, nobody cares. Like, I'm not a I mean, you don't cover basketball. college basketball. Yeah. yeah, so it's like, it's, it's a, um, you know, it's kind of a, I think it's a moot point. All right, interesting question from Michael Galvin in Agora Hills. A criticism we hear about Ohio State quarterbacks, and he's talking about in the draft, is that the offense is too easy. Guys run wide open. They scheme everything for one or two reads, which is why NFL teams question their QBs. Here's what I don't understand. If the scheme is so great and guys run free and you never need to get to your third read, why the heck isn't every NFL team adopting this scheme? Good question, Mike. It is a good question. So I posed it to some NFL coaches this week. Um, and the, my thinking was one point was like, okay, Ohio State has better receivers than everybody else they play, especially in the Big Ten. How much is a factor of that? And that both coaches that I talked to said, no, that is definitely a factor. Another coach made the point, look, it's a combination of things and said, the, one of the big differences is the hash marks in college football. So basically in the NFL, the ball is pretty much in the middle of the field the entire game. It's harder to put guys in huge amounts of open space. And especially when you're talking about Ohio State has better skill guys, that open space is a big difference. Um, and this person made this say, also pointed out, there's a huge talent gap in, you know, in the NFL compared to what you have in college where he said... In the NFL, it is not uncommon to see linebackers who are running four, four, five, four, five, and can run stuff down. He was like the biggest gap difference in what you have in the NFL compared to college. This person is in the safety play. He was like, safety play in college football is atrocious, and he was like, because of that, you get guys out of position. It's just there are lots of big plays there. He said in the NFL. It's a different animal. Um, the other coach also made the point. He was like, look, Ohio State, if you remember, he's like, they've had some hard time when they played Iowa. He said, because those guys are really well coached and they're going to force the quarterback to go through progressions and make decisions. And at Ohio State, it's a, you know, it's just a, a an easier animal to attack uh, than what they see in college. Now, is that unique to Ohio State or, or is he saying like, Basically, all of the top teams, you know, Alabama, who obviously has, has a talent gap, yeah, it's... LSU in 2019, is basically like, you know, that makes it harder to judge how these guys are going to do in the NFL because they're, you know, dealing with a completely different set of circumstances. Yeah, look, if you go back to the, um, I remember like one, and I didn't bet this game, but one game I was like, I was almost 100% sure was going to happen was... I had seen Oklahoma in person in 2019, and I had been around LSU. That was a really bad matchup for Alex Grinch and Lincoln Riley. Those receivers were going to absolutely abuse the Sooners. 
none of those defensive backs are, are going to be like, maybe there may be one or so who are like, okay, maybe they'll be NFL players. They may be in an NFL camp. But it was like, Justin Jefferson was basically like rookie of the year talent, like ate up the NFL. He wasn't even the best receiver LSU had. You know, Jamar Chase was. It was like, look what they did to those guys. And again, it's it's the talent gap is so significant, especially as the coach made the case. When you have the hash marks, I, you know, it's like there's so much more room to exploit and guys are left out on not just islands, they're huge islands. You know who benefited from the hash marks in college a lot was uh, Art Bryles at Baylor. I remember when they had it rolling and Bryce Petty was their quarterback and it was the draft cycle he was in, how the NFL people were so dismissive of him and so dismissive of that offense. Um, you know, they're like, this guy never has to make any reads. The receivers are running wide open. And I remember having the exact same thought Michael is suggesting here. Like, if it's that easy, if they make it that easy, then why aren't you guys doing it? Well, sure enough, uh, you know, Bryce Petty never really did anything in the NFL. Uh, even Corey Coleman, who was such a stud receiver, uh, hasn't had that much success. You know, that was an offense that was all about exploiting those hash marks and getting, you know, you know using the entire field. And um, and it just doesn't it just doesn't translate. So um, anyway, I thought that was, but, I, but it's still I, I'm glad he brought that up because that is something that that can be puzzling at times. Sam Callen in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Love the podcast. I've been listening to Stu since the Mandel Initiative days. That's some serious dedication, Sam. That was more than a decade ago. As I was listening to the discussion about the greatest team ever, Miami 2001, versus a number of Alabama teams. So we got into this last week about the, you know, is the Alabama, recent Alabama teams, are they going to turn out to be as talented, if not more so, than Miami 2001? You mentioned how long Alabama has kept at the top. A big part seems like it might be that Miami, after Jimmy Johnson, changed head coaches about every five seasons. Bama has had one constant for over a decade in Saban. Maybe if Jimmy Johnson had stayed for a decade more, Miami has a similar streak. Very good point by Sam. Look, I mean, some of the coaches who work with Howard Schnellenberger feel like if he had stayed instead chasing the USFL, um, that he would have won six plus national titles there too because that thing was set up. Obviously, Jimmy Johnson went in. There was a little bit of a hiccup, and then he got it cranked up, and then he took, you know, went with his old college teammate Jerry Jones to the NFL and then won championships there. I mean, Erickson won two titles after, two national titles after him, but it was like that is the crazy thing about Miami was you had a bunch of different coaches go in there and win national titles, whereas Saban has had assistant coaches come and go, but he's been the real constant and he's, you know, been, you know, done a really remarkable job there and that's what's so different about it it's very hard to maintain a dynasty when you're changing coaches every few years and in fact it's pretty remarkable that miami won national titles with so many different coaches in a relatively short amount of time and in fact they had those nca sanctions that set them back for a few years and then butch davis came in and got it right back uh, but for the most part you know when you think about dynasties in college football it's one coach whether it was Bear Bryant, whether it's whether it was Bobby Bowden at Florida State, it's one coach who who was there for the duration of it. Um, now, the, you know, he said Jim, if Jimmy Johnson had stayed, I think what you know this came up. Howard Schnellenberger passed away recently, and the question came up like, what what might have happened? What might have been if he had not left for the USFL and he he'd remained the Miami coach for a long time? Hey, I got one for you. 
This one coach did not win any national titles there, but he stocked the place with more, probably as much as much talent as any of them did. And that's and that's Butch Davis. Like Butch Davis left to go to the Browns. Larry Coker won, I think, his first thirty-four games as the head coach there, and yeah. won, certainly, obviously, Amazing. won a national title and and almost won a second. Um, if Butch, I like, I I, I don't know this because I mean I've written about Butch Davis, but I've, I don't remember asking him specifically like, how often now does he wonder if I had stayed there? Like, if he'd stayed there, he's a Hall of Fame college coach. He has probably, I would guess he would have at least two national titles. I, he certainly would have done what Larry Coker did those first couple of years. And, and I, I always hate dumping on Larry Coker because he's a super nice guy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at the end of the day, you can't take away what, what he did, but like he always seemed in over his head and that it eventually, you know, fell apart. And whereas I think Butch Davis would have been able to sustain it for a lot longer. Um, it's a credit to those players, to the Ed Reeds and the Ken Dorsey's that they did what they did even though there was a pretty substantial drop-off in in the head coach before that um, 2001 season. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's obviously interesting because he's at FIU now, and he had, you know, he had a run of talent at North Carolina, but if you look at it, um, you know, considering how he was as a first-time head coach at Miami, you know, he, as you said, they were a mess when he, he got it, and then by the time he left, it was, you know, a completely different animal right now. Um, you know, he's almost a 500 coach or close to a 500 coach, I guess, in his career, in spite of all that. All right. Send your emails to the audible pod at gmail.com. And again, you can subscribe to the athletic for a 20% discount, the athletic.com slash the audible. We'll see you next time.